But let's pick up the story then. Let's read it for ourselves. Um, Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in uh, brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. (coughs) The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. And they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. I'm going to carry on. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. And she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister, that's Moses' sister, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of water. Now one day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. 
He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. I don't know what the, what the Hebrew is for that, but don't you love that? Looking this way and that. It's kind of like a cartoon thing, isn't it? <laughs> Looking this way and that. Seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. Next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flock. And when the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I've become a foreigner in in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. This is going back. This is a little backtrack now. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up for God, to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your help in understanding this morning. We pray you'll speak to our hearts through your word. We believe you superintended its writing by your Holy Spirit, so that what is here is what you intended it to say. We believe you are here this morning by your Holy Spirit, and we ask you to open our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts, to see what is written in the text, and to see you, and to see Christ in it, and to marvel and delight, and to love you all the more because of what you've done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question. Why study Exodus? Why study Exodus? And I've sort of heard, you know, I've kind of, you know, I guess heard that around about the place. Why, why study Exodus? Well, the, the question, I guess, is the same as why do you study any book of the Bible? <laughs> why study any book of the Bible? And I think it's kind of, hey, well done, um, and, and it's that old phrase which comes out of God's spell. And I have to say, I kind of did go back and have a kind of like, you know, blast from the past and listen to odd God's spell songs as I was writing this, this out. But, but there's a famous song where um, the, the cry of, of the lyrics go, we want to see you more clearly, love you more dearly, follow you more nearly day by day. And if you're an ageing hippie, um, you'll know these lyrics well. If you're not, they probably mean absolutely nothing to you. But actually, they're quite a good summary of what we're trying to do. We want to see Jesus more clearly. And believe it or not, we can see Jesus um, through the book of Exodus. And if you see him clearly, then you will inevitably love him more dearly. And if you love him more dearly, you will inevitably follow him um, more nearly, more closely. day by day. And that's what we're trying to do. That begs a second question on the next slide, which is why should we expect to see Jesus in Exodus? 
Well, I want to give you a couple of reasons. Uh, and the first one is, is what Jesus said to his disciples. You remember, he appeared to the, the two on the road to Emmaus, uh, and then he appeared to the eleven. So it's the first time he's appeared to the eleven um, disciples since, since they've risen. Uh, and what does he say to them? He says, this, this me risen, this me having died and risen, is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And for a Jewish mind, those are the three divisions of the Old Testament. So Jesus, isn't that amazing? That when he's risen, he takes them back to the Old Testament and says, this is this what you see before you. The died and risen Christ is fulfilling what is written in the Old Testament. So we should expect to find the Old Testament speaking about Jesus. But we can be more specific than that. Because Paul, I don't remember whether you remember this in 1 Corinthians 5, when that was our previous series. At one point he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And he goes then on to talking about keeping the festival um, without yeast. And the yeast is kind of bitterness and um, disunity um, within the church. And so Paul's very clear that Christ is our Passover lamb. So we have, going back to Exodus, we, we are to expect that there is going to be some significant parallels between their story and our story. And in fact, if you get the book from the bank, which I recommend to you, Tim Chester's Exodus for you, he will tell you this is our story. It's not just their story, it is our story too. Well, let's, let's dig in. Let's try and um, work this out a little bit. So right at the beginning, we've got some names. We've got these are the sons of Israel. And why do we get these strange names? And why are we going back to Jacob? Well, because we need to remember at the beginning of the story, we're not just dealing with any old people. We're dealing with the family of Abraham. And you may or may not remember the, the story of Joseph, um, who is um, Jacob's son. So he is Abraham's um, grandson. And obviously, Joseph was uh, sold off into slavery and becomes uh, kind of effectively second highest in the land uh, of Egypt. And by that mechanism, um, Abraham's family are rescued, actually, when there is famine in their own land, in, in the land that God's given them in, in Canaan. So we're not dealing with just any people here. We are dealing with the family of Abraham. And they are people with a promise. God, Abraham is the family um, that God has called out to be his people. And as his people, he is going to give them a place. And through his people, he plans to bless um, the whole world. So they're people uh, of a promise. But as we read on, we find that Joseph and all his brothers and that generation has died and the Israelites have been increasingly um, fruitful. So this is now 400 years later and it looks like this promise is threatened. One half of it is coming true. They, they've multiplied. God has promised that Abraham is going to be a big family and he's going to be more than a big family, he's going to be a nation uh, and that promise is, is coming true. But the other half of the promise... They were supposed to have a place, a promised land, the land of Canaan, and that looks more distant than, than it has before because a new king has come to a throne. He's, he's forgotten about Joseph and what Joseph did, not only for Abraham, but for Egypt. And Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, feels threatened by this bunch of people, this minority who have 
grown up, they started as economic migrants and now they've grown up in the land to become a kind of nation within a nation. And you can imagine how we would feel threatened the same way. If, if one of the ethnic minorities who'd come into the country just grew and grew and grew. Well, that's what's happened and Pharaoh feels threatened. So what does Pharaoh do? Well, we read it in the story. Initially, he tells the Hebrew midwives to um, kill the baby boys. And then he tells them they've got to throw all their boys into the Nile. And you can see really clearly at this point that Pharaoh has set himself up against God. What is God doing? God is fulfilling his promises. He is giving them life. What is Pharaoh doing? Is He's trying to take that life away. And what's the right response? Well, isn't that wonderful? You get these wonderful little kind of evidences of, of, of people's actions and, and trust in the middle of it. These wonderful uh, midwives, they, re- they refuse to do what Pharaoh tells them to do. With a little bit of half-truth thrown in along the way. But how do they manage to stand against the superpower? Well, they feared God. The midwives, there it is, verse 17, feared God and didn't do what the king of Egypt said. I heard it said somewhere recently that um, only, uh, fear is only driven out by a greater fear. I can't remember where I read that. I think that may well be true. And I wonder what you fear. I wonder what you fear. I wonder what things you're worrying about, you're anxious about, what you're fearing. Well, what happened to these midwives was that that fear was displaced by a greater fear. That they were more concerned about God's honour, about honouring the Lord. That was their greater fear. Their greater fear was that they would dishonour God and God would be displeased. And that drove out their lesser fear, their, their fear of Pharaoh. So I wonder, that's one thing to go and think about. If, if you're in a fearful place, how come you don't fear God more than the thing you're fearing? And so we get the people have got themselves into a captive place. They've become captive to someone who's, who is clearly a, 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 an agent of, of Satan. And what's the nature of this captivity? Well, by this time, they're born into it. Generation by generation uh, is born into this captivity. In that sense, it's kind of unintentional. They're, they're caught up in a bigger web. And they're influenced by a decision that was, that was made generations before them. It, it was Jacob's decision, it was a sensible decision at the time to go down to Egypt where um, Joseph had providentially been rescued and he could get grain uh, and be rescued too. But a decision made generations before it has stuck them in a place of captivity. And it's the same with us. A decision made generations and generations ago, a decision made by Adam to not trust God, not to be dependent on him, and to, to go his own way and to be his, his own king has cast everybody outside the Garden of Eden so that you and I are born into a captivity. Maybe you didn't realise this. We're born into captivity. Born into captivity is sin, and sin is essentially self-rule. 
over against God's rule. So they're born into captivity by, by the very fact of the decision that, that Jacob made. Though Jacob made it in good intention, we are born into captivity by the fact that we're children of Adam, a decision that, 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 that Adam made. The other thing is that they are powerless to escape. They've come under a greater power and they cannot escape. There is no way of getting out. So a decision made a long time ago means that they've born into a captivity that they cannot escape. And that is the same as you and I. A decision made a long time ago meant we were born into captivity, a captivity to sin. Captivity to self-rule that we could not and cannot escape. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians. Shouldn't surprise us too much. He says for us, he says to the Ephesians, says to the Ephesian Christians note, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. He says you were dead. You were spiritually dead. There was no spiritual life in you before you came to Christ. There was no way of you raising yourself up. You were so captive that it was as if you were a corpse as far as God is concerned, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's clearly a reference to to Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, we and everybody else are are born into actually into Satan's kingdom, which is a place of darkness, it's a place of captivity. And he says to them and includes himself, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That doesn't mean we're all kind of, um, as, you know, in, into orgies and um, as bad as we could be, but it means that we were following our own desires and not God's desires. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving uh, of wrath. Now, that's a much worse picture than, than we like to consider most of the time. I don't know how we... You, I, I think we fall into this pattern that we think we're actually we're quite nice people. But we've got a few little dark patches that we need Jesus to cover. And the Bible paints a much darker picture than that. And here's a helpful illustration for you. This picture of, uh, of captivity. It's entirely consistent with the New Testament picture that you and I were people caught by a greater power. Satan and his kingdom. And we were caught and uh, forced to make bricks. We, we were stuck in sin, sin, self-rule kind of sin. And we were spiritually dead and powerless to escape. And we needed what these people need which is a rescuer from the outside. They cannot save themselves. They need somebody to step in. And Paul says in Romans 6, but thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You used to be slaves. used to be slaves like Israel. And then he goes on to say, you now have been set free and have become slaves to righteousness. And actually, as we'll go on through the book, we'll see that kind of Passover is central, and our setting free is by having 
Another sacrifice which turns away God's anger. And of course that sacrifice is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And why is this important? I think whilst we don't understand, don't appreciate who we were, then we don't appreciate what's been done for us. If we think we're essentially nice and Jesus just covers the odd dark patch, then our allegiance to Jesus is weak. If we see that we were in the dark, we were enslaved, we were powerless, and we understand what Jesus has done is to step down and, and, and to rescue us from that, then I think our allegiance to Christ is so much stronger. We see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. If we don't see the captivity that we come from, then I think we think we can do spiritual change on our own. If we recognise we're captives, and what will prove true of these captives when they're set free is that quite, they'd still quite like to go back to Egypt, really. Because in some ways it was so much nicer. <laughs> At least it was easier and, uh, and predictable. They'll find that Egypt is in them. Unless we see ourselves as captives, we take sin just a little bit too lightly. We don't see that sin has penetrated us. Those years of captivity, the years before we came to Christ, are deeply rooted and we still need Christ's help. Christ is the rescuer. And that's exactly what God provides. That's the good news. Uh, Move on into Exodus 2. God provides a rescuer. Won't stay here in detail. But like the story of Jesus, the women are significant. In fact, the women are fundamental um, to the story. Moses doesn't look much like a rescuer at the beginning. But his mum thinks he looks fine, (laughs) it says. And actually it's the word good. It's the same as the word good in Genesis 1. She thinks he looks good. He looks fine. So... Um, she goes to these extra efforts, doesn't she, to, 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 to rescue him. She does throw him in the river, but she provides him with a little ark. Actually, it's the same word used of, of Noah's ark. He has a little pitch-covered ark, and she puts him in the water. It's a kind of act of faith. She can't bear to see him killed, and she gives him a chance, hands him over at least to the providence of God, fights Pharaoh in the only way she can. And then Pharaoh's daughter finds him and has compassion. Ah, it's one of the Hebrew babies, but he's crying. And she has compassion. And then Moses' sister takes the initiative. Isn't that wonderful? She hangs around to kind of see what what happens. Shall I find a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? And uh, and, um, Pharaoh's daughter says yes. And uh, Moses' mum ends up being paid to raise her own son. It's a very early form of child benefit. Okay. And this is God's providence. God's providence is, is, is his arranging of circumstances, his arranging of history, of people and things, so that his will is done. His providence is a wonderful thing. Did, did anybody's wills get overruled there? I don't think so. Did, did the... Did, Moses' mum need to act in faith? Yes. Did Pharaoh's daughter need to act in compassion? Yes. Did um, Moses' sister need to pluck up a little bit of courage? Yes, she did. And yet God's providence is his ability to mould all of that to his own ends. He is an amazing God. 
and he has orchestrated all these strands, bringing all these things together in the right place at the right time so the little art bumps um, into... Um, well, it doesn't actually bump. That was a bit of artistic license, wasn't it? didn't actually bump into Pharaoh's daughter's leg. She saw it. It's what we read. Uh, Moses uh, is rescued, a little bit like Jesus is rescued from Herod. And when he's grown up, Moses goes out to see his own people at work and, and one of his fellow countrymen has been abused by an Egyptian and instinctively he steps in. And I don't know, maybe as a son of the court, maybe he's kind of wearing some kind of weapons, we're not told that. But he just steps in and, and, and kills the Egyptian stone dead. And his rescuing instinct is right, but the method and the timing are not. Because ultimately you can't fight fire with fire. He can't fight Egypt's power with the same kind of power. But he has set a course and he has made a choice. One that sees him driven out of Egypt. To Midian. And Midian in a sense is home, or at least it's nearer home. He's come to people who wander around that land of Midian and Canaan. And he meets Rule, who later will call Jethro. And find somebody who's a worshipper of God. Uh, and so he says, and interestingly, um, Tim Chester again in the book suggests that, that we shouldn't translate this, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land, but I've been a foreigner. I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now I'm with my people. So he gains a wife and he gains a son. And he calls his son Ger- Gershom. I've been a foreigner in a foreign land and now, now I'm home. And in that split second, he's, he's made a decision, an instinctive decision about where his allegiance lies. Does his allegiance lie with, with God and God's people and God's promise, or does, or does his allegiance lie um, with Egypt? And you have that split second decision so many times in a week to make. Does my allegiance lie with God and God's people uh, and God's truth? Or does my, uh, does my allegiance lie with my past life, with the world? I'm with sin, and what is wrong, and, and particularly in our speech so often. And Moses, you see, is just a, I think it's almost, it's like a snap decision. And, and you'll find this week you're going to have all, any number of snap decisions. Where is, where is my allegiance going to go? Is it in comfort? Is it with the pack? Is it with the agents of sin? Or is it on the road with the worshippers of God? And so... The writer sums it up like this. End of chapter 2. During that long period, these 400 years, the end of it, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It's a very straightforward process. People in trouble cried out. God heard, remembered his covenant, acted. Because I think so often we read it like this, or we think of it like this, they were in trouble, they prayed, and God sat on his hands for ages, umming and ahhing. Ah! And then he remembered what he'd forgotten. And then he kind of sat on his hands and thought a bit more. And then, oh, and eventually, Moses is provided, it's simply not true. The word remembered here really means that he acted on his covenant 
when he remember, God's remembering of his covenant is his, is his acting on his covenant. So there was a covenant, a pact in place between God and these people. He had said to them that I will be, you will be my people, I will be your God. It's a pact, it's a bit like, you know, you see blood brothers in sort of cow, and Indian films. Remember those when you were a kid? You actually don't get them so much anymore, do we? Cowboy and Indian films. But you know, a blood pact where you would kind of like, I don't know, you'd kind of, you would um, take your um, knife and cut in your hand and you would put blood to blood and it would be a pact that um, you'd be blood brothers that one of you would come to the aid of the other and, and vice versa. And God has made a pact with these people that he is their God. They would be his people. They'd trust him and obey him and he would be their God who would look after them and rescue them. So it's like a treaty. So they were stuck. They prayed and God acted because he has bound himself to them and he has bound himself to to act towards them on on their behalf. That's the covenant. And so it is with Christ. It is a blood covenant. It It is a covenant signed with blood that he says, you be my people and I will be your God. God has chosen you like Abraham's family. God has rescued you through Christ the Passover lamb. God has bound himself to you. So when you go and pray, you are not trying to rouse a sleepy God. You are not trying to bring to God's remembrance a covenant that he has forgotten. You're going to a God who has a treaty with you, a pact with you, that he loves you and and will bless you. Sometimes this blessing doesn't look like what you want it to look like. But nevertheless, God is positively disposed towards you at all times. Because he loves you, and has chosen you, and has rescued you, and sent Christ to you. So Romans 5, just at the right time, When we were still powerless, notice back to that theme, captivity, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we, while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we've now been justified by his blood, So you've been put right with God. Reputation restored by the blood of Christ, by his death. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? If while we were God's enemies, we were were reconciled to him through the death of his son, now that we are reconciled, how much more shall we be saved through his life? So Christ died for you while you were a sinner. Now you're justified, now you're not a sinner. And there is Christ in heaven. Uh, how much more? Now that you're not a sinner, you're walking his way. Is he going to be positively, positively disposed towards you? It's one of those kind of arguments with no answer, but, it, but you get the point. Or actually, put more succinctly in, in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I just want to 
use this as an encouragement to your prayers, how will he not also graciously give us all things? He has given up his only son for you. So when you come to prayer, is he turning his face away? How will he not also graciously give you all things? So when you pray before God, he looks on you as family, somebody he has a pact with. How will he not bless? Just might not look like the blessing you want. We know in all things God works for for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Because God, when you go to him, he's made a covenant with you and the blood of Jesus is is the signature on the contract. So, just to give you a couple of points to think about as you go away. If you consider yourself a rescued captive, rather than just a sort of church hanger-on or you know, a Jesus hanger-on, what difference does that make? I want you to just go away and think, oh, I was a captive. And actually, you know there's a bit in Ephesians about how Jesus lead us, leads us like captives in his train. That was what conquering armies did. They, they brought their captives out with them. Well, Jesus has come in. He has conquered the kingdom of Egypt. And he's pulled you out. And you're now one of his captives in his train. What, what does that mean for you this week? Just while well, you go away and have a think. What does it mean? I was a captive. I was a captive to sin to self. I'm now a captive of Christ, for Christ. I don't know, a number of things. Maybe just make us recognise our dependence on that great rescue. Maybe it would just knock a little bit more out of our pride and maybe it would just increase a notch of our thankfulness. Thank you, Father God, that, that Exodus speaks of Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you have been here by your Holy Spirit with us this morning and you have been speaking to our hearts. And we pray you will strengthen our hearts to, to understand. Please fix before us um, this week, this, this picture that we were captives to sin and to self and to Satan. We were powerless and you broke through that. And you now draw us off as captives in your train. But that's actually the blessed place to be. That is the best place to be. And you want to bless us. And when we come to pray, you remember us because you have promised to do so. You have set yourself to do so. You have made a treaty to do so a covenant. So please, Lord, forgive us the times we've wandered off back into Egypt this week or we've wanted to be in Egypt. And keep us moving forward, we pray, in your train. Uh, See you more clearly, love you more dearly, follow you more nearly, day by day.